Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And it is time for a classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode originally published way back on October 15th, 2014. It is titled, Do We Need Humanoid Robots? Uh, An interesting question, because we often, at least, I don't know, I can't say we, I often think of robots as sort of anthropomorphic robots. Like, I think of droids in the Star Wars, like C-3PO, that kind of droid. Not R2. He's clearly not humanoid. But, you know, I think of humanoid robots more frequently than other types, despite the fact that the vast majority of robots I've encountered have not been humanoid robots. So that does raise a question. Does a humanoid robot even make sense? We try and answer that in this particular episode. Enjoy. I asked Josh what he would like to cover, because with the fact that I've got all these guests coming in to sit down with me, um, you know, some people like to come up with their own suggestions. Some people prefer it if I pick a topic and then they they research it. Mm-hmm. I asked Josh what he would like to talk about, and uh, you were really interested in the idea of humanoid robots. Well, you have this awesome spreadsheet of um, of listener suggestions. Yeah. And it might as well have been a neon when yeah. I was going down the sheet. I'm like, humanoid robots, of course. And this is... A great topic. Uh, in order to really get into it, I was going to define a few terms, even though a lot of these are ones that I think most of us just kind of understand just from the the, the fact that this is in our culture now. It's mm-hmm. not just not just a reality as far as technology goes, but it plays a large part in fiction. In fact, that's where the term robot comes from. Is from fiction, right? Uh, it was from uh, Karel Chopek a Czechoslovakian playwright. Did you look up that pronunciation? I did, nice. in fact, listen to it nice. a couple of times. Karel Chapek. Uh, yeah, because it's his last name is uh, spelled C-A-P-E-K, and it includes uh, symbols that are not in the English alphabet. Right. Above, like squiggly lines and little UFOs and things. Uh, he wrote R-U-R, also known as Rossum's Universal Robots. And right. the word robot comes from the Czech word robota, which means forced labor. Yeah. So a robot is a an entity, uh, a synthetic construct that is forced to do work. Uh, then we have humanoid, which just means resembling a human being. Right. Uh, that's a term that is relatively young. It started uh, showing up around the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, it started, I think the first few times it was ever mentioned was around 1912. And it was mostly used then to describe fossils. Saying these are humanoid fossils. Oh, kind of like uh, what hominid became. Yeah. And then we have android, which is, we're probably not going to be using that word very often, but android is a robot that's in the form of a human. Uh, so all androids are robots, but not all robots are androids. And, you know, I ran into, uh, I looked up android as well. Yeah. And apparently that's from like the early 18th century. It's a little odd that it actually predates robots. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it, when we look at myths and legends, there's so many stories that involve a human-like entity that's mm-hmm. not actually a person yep. that you can see where it gets translated in there. Uh, this gets a little confusing, too, because Star Wars, they called all their robots droids. Right. But they're, they aren't androids. R2-D2 is not an android because he's not, um, or it's not human-shaped. You could even argue that C-3PO is not a true android because some people say 
To be an android, you have to appear at least on casual glance to be human. He's way too shiny. Way too shiny. Yeah. D- data from Star Trek Next Generation might be an uh, android, but yeah. he's an android who's had you know a, pr- a long time in the man cave. He hasn't seen much sun. Right. Yeah, because he's definitely got a weird complexion thing going. Oh, he's translucent. Uh, the kid in AI would be an android. David. Yes. Which turns out to be a popular name for uh, droids. Wow. Because there was, well, there was David in AI, and there was also David in Prometheus. Oh, you know, I never saw Prometheus. I don't know if your listeners are going to agree with me or not, because mm-hmm. I could see um, it getting shouted down, but I thought Prometheus was a great movie. Okay. Even, even upon second viewing, I thought it was good. You know, I, I know that the from the artistic level, mm-hmm. a lot of people really loved it, and then there were some people who said, how can you get lost if you have a three-dimensional map yeah. with you at all times? But, you know, plot versus artist I don't know. Yeah. Uh, then you've got uh, replicants from Blade Runner. These are more like cyborgs because they have some sort of organic material uh, attached to them. They're not completely 100%, you know, uh, synthetic material. Yeah. So uh, Terminator's another example. They have a fleshy over skin on top of their metallic bodies. But was that real skin that he had or was it th- synthetic skin? Because that would make a difference. That's a good question. And I, uh, you know, I know that they refer to them as cyborgs at least a few times in the movies, mm-hmm. which would suggest that it's actual skin. Maybe it's lab grown human skin. Yeah. So, I, you know, there's some fuzzy lines around these definitions i would think that cyborgs would be the hardest of all of the the um humanoid robots to make because the flesh would just rot like you'd have your normal looking humanoid robot your cyborg and its ear would just fall off yeah and it's not as easy as you might think to uh wire together the wetware that's in our heads Mm -hmm. with hardware that runs on circuits we often think of computers working in a way that's similar to our brains, but in fact, the two work in very different ways. Well, it seems like running into this, though, Strickland, um, the the more we got into humanoid robotics, uh-huh. the more we started to understand just how complex we are. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is a benefit of study of humanoid robotics. Mm-hmm. The idea of, of pursuing the goal of creating a humanoid robot is not just that we learn more about all the different areas in robotics, and there are a lot. We'll talk about some of them. But we also learn more about ourselves. Right. I mean, we're trying to figure out, okay, if we're going to make something that is able to perform tasks the way a human does, then we really got to take a close look at humans. Right. That's, that's the first place to start. So what makes a humanoid robot? And generally speaking, we're talking about a robot that has basic features, usually at minimum a torso, arms and legs, and right. is walking upright. Uh, it may have a head or it might not. Early humanoid robots didn't. Or at least their sensory uh, uh, instruments were all located within the top part of the torso. There wasn't right. like a, a separate head. Did you see a picture of Minerva at the Smithsonian? No, I did not. It's a robot tour guide, but um, she came up in the humanoid robot research and I think she's stretching it a little yeah. bit. Yeah, she looks a bit like a a washing machine with a couple of um, cameras <laughs> on top. So just those alone, I guess, makes her eligible for the humanoid robot realm. But I yeah. thought she was stretching that, it a little that bit. That seems like that's a bit of a, you know, if it has an appendage, that doesn't necessarily make it humanoid. I mean, you could look at the Mars Curiosity rover, which mm-hmm. has several appendages. Mm-hmm. 
but I don't think anyone would ever describe it as humanoid. Right. So, uh, ideally, a humanoid robot would be able to interact with humans mm -hmm. within a human environment. Because uh, here's the thing about we we people, we have defined our environments to a large extent, especially in developed nations, where the stuff that's around us, we have shaped so that it works within our capabilities. Right. With our, with our human environment thus yep. far. If you look at technology, though, on the whole, we've pretty much been forced to adapt to it. Yeah. So, for example, like a keyboard, we don't normally naturally, you know, um, express ideas through our fingers on a little a little board. Right. We don't normally do that. So we had to adapt to the technology and learn to type and get good at it. With humanoid robots, it's basically going the exact opposite. Right. It's saying we already have an environment. We already are, um, you know, good at all of this other stuff. If we're going to make humanoid robots, one of the great benefits is they can adapt to us. Right. Yeah, we don't have to uh, create a unitasker robot that's really good at one thing mm -hmm. um, that may or may not be something that humans can do easily. We can make a robot that's good at lots of things. Uh, I also think usually when I think of humanoid robots, when I think of robots in general, mm -hmm. I normally think that they are at least semi-autonomous. That's, that's one of the things I usually think of. It doesn't necessarily have to be. You could have a tele-operated robot right but i almost think of that closer to the realm of like a remote controlled car yeah. or a puppet right. even um so i often one of the definitions i use is that it's a, an autonomous or semi-autonomous machine right in human form it's mechanical and uh electronic and it can thus do the sort of things humans do but do it in a totally synthetic way and you have to be careful when you say autonomous or semi-autonomous because the state of the art right now appears to be that uh, robots display autonomy because they just kind of wander off in places they're not supposed to. Right. But it's not because they want to. It's because their their program just ran afoul of right. program. Right. There's no determination there on the part of the robot. Yeah. It's not exploring its environment on its own accord. Mm -hmm. It's someone made a mistake in the code somewhere mm -hmm. and where the robot was supposed to take a left-hand turn at this one, you know, predetermined spot, it instead continued forward or something. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of, of humanoid robots. And if you want to look way, way, way back, I mean, we're talking about the first people to really kind of attempt to build a humanoid machine mm -hmm. that could mimic or the movements, at least, of a person. You got to go all the way back to, to Greece between the years 10 and 70 common era. That's when hero of Alexandria started to create various machines. He's also the person who made the first working steam engine style tool, which is pretty impressive. For yeah. that Time. Yeah. He, he had come up with a lot of very clever designs, whether they were built or not depends upon uh, certain accounts mm -hmm. and and if they're true, but the stuff he designed is completely buildable. So right. he didn't come up with any ideas where it was so, you know, outlandish that it was impossible. Right. He wasn't just like drawing in the margins of his diary or something. No. Yeah. He came up with specific plans that people today have recreated. They built their own wow. versions. Yeah. Uh, so he created a lot of uh, uh, designs for automata, although these are things that were controlled by pulleys and ropes and cogged wheels and, uh, needed some form of outside influence to make them work. So they're not all fully self-contained. Mm -hmm. So not it's a kind big of surprise. like uh, 
like the showbiz pizza rockafire explosion band yeah exactly yeah yeah some one of those uh uh, audio animatronic figures Uh that that looks very robotic but you realize it's really just one tiny piece of a giant system yeah uh in 1495, we get up to Leonardo da Vinci. He designed an automaton in the form of a mechanical knight, which, uh, again, supposedly he built. There's no actual record of an existing one from history, right. but they have created ones based on the design since then. And it could do Who, things like move its arms and raise its visor. Who's doing this? Who's doing this? Yeah, who's Crazy engineers who are also... Uh, very excited about history and very wealthy too i would imagine yeah uh so in this case you're talking about um mark rossheim mm-hmm. who recreated this particular machine and it it it's a knight it's a knight in german medieval armor uh-huh. and it can uh sit down it can stand up it can move its arms it can raise a visor it can mo- work its jaw wow um that's got to be unsettling I imagine so. I tried to find video of of Rossheim's version working, and I couldn't find it. He did, however, make another of Da Vinci's inventions, which was a self driving cart that used oh, wow. a yeah you you wound a spring and it had uh, cam stops that would allow it to steer a predetermined path. You would actually program the cart oh, wow by putting cam stops in particular locations along the cam, mm-hmm. and that would tell it when to turn left or when to turn right. So yeah. it couldn't. It couldn't navigate through a, a, an obstacle course unless you had already previously seen the obstacle course and you could figure out when it needed to turn right. ahead of time. So you're essentially programming the device. Um, there are lots of examples in the Renaissance of automata and semi-automata, things that were really more like puppets. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've heard about the Mechanical Turk? No, I haven't. It's the chess-playing uh, robot. Wow. Uh, so it looked like it was a robot that could play chess and was really, really good at playing chess. Mm-hmm. And it turned out eventually to be a hoax. It was actually oh, a, was it? it was actually a puppet, and there was an actual chess master hidden in a cabinet beneath the the mechanical Turk who, who sat kind of Indian style with a chessboard in front of him and could move the pieces to where it needed to be. But it was all being guided by an actual chess master who when, was hidden underneath. When was that? That was late Renaissance, well, uh, okay. early Enlightenment. That in and of itself is pretty impressive. Yeah, it was. It was neat that people were thinking about these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, by 1926, we get the first humanoid robot to appear on film, mm-hmm. uh, Metropolis, mm-hmm. the character of Maria. And at 1939, at the World's Fair, Westinghouse Electric Corporation showed off a robot called Electro. Uh-huh. Now, have you ever seen this? No. So he kind of looks like uh, the Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz film. I have seen him, yes. He smokes. I have seen it's one him, of yes. the things he can do. Yeah, he had a little uh, bellows in his uh, head right. that allowed him to puff smoke. He could also kind of speak. He had a seventy-eight revolution per minute uh, record player essentially inside of him. Could he cough? Uh, he, uh, I suppose, if the if the needle skipped, it would at least sound <laughs> like it. Um, he would repeat himself over. He called the audience toots. That was, that was the so name of like a, a robot grandpa. Yeah. He's apparently the main reason he was retired from, uh, being shown off at exhibitions was because it was very dated kind of, uh, yeah. uh lingo. Yeah. But he was used at the 1939 world's fair, uh, which was, uh, it's funny cause I'll be talking about that again in another episode very shortly. The 1939 world's fair would have been an amazing thing to visit. Um, I, I'm more of a 64 man myself. I can understand that. Uh, but if you're, if you're going to get to the point where you're looking at full scale 
anthropomorphic robots. Mm-hmm. You got to get up to about 1973. That's when the Waybot One from the uh, Waseda University came out. Uh, that was the first full-scale anthropomorphic robot developed in the world, uh, which had limb control, a vision system, so it had an optical system that could recognize its environment and objects. And measure distance. Yep. Yeah. And it also had a conversation system. Uh, it was actually a, a, a collection of a bunch of very complex machinery, like mm-hmm. its hands had been previously developed independently of the robot, so had its legs. Mm-hmm. So it's like all these people coming up with these various pieces saying, all right, let's connect all this together and see what happens. <laughs> and and so That was a huge, huge leap forward. Yeah. You know, if you'll notice, we went basically from um, hoaxy chess-playing Turks right. to, you know, a, a robot that could converse and interact with its environment. Yep. And then um, it seems like we, we kind of went off course for a little bit, and now we're coming full circle back to that. Where, like you said, a lot of different disciplines are contributing these different pieces to what will eventually be all of the best practices from each little subdiscipline put together yeah. in, you know, the true humanoid robot. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about a humanoid robot that's capable of interacting with people uh, as if they were, you know, their own person, mm-hmm. even though maybe an odd person, mm-hmm. not like the kind of person you would typically run into. There's it's a multidisciplinary approach. I mean, artificial intelligence by itself is multidisciplinary. Sure. Because you have sensing, you have so all the perception, there's all these different just that's multidisciplinary. Right. Uh, then you've got the the processing, the cognition, uh, things like uh, planning, navigation. There are so many things that come together to make a humanoid robot a a possibility. And that's just the the mental side. Right. right. Then you have all the physical side the how do you make it walk how do you make it keep its balance so lots of stuff to consider there we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we will look more at the issue of humanoid robots Waybot 2 came out in 1980 that was a specialist robot it could play a keyboard electronic (laughs) keyboard yeah It could read sheet music and play music. Uh, It was, because it was a specialist, it was not able to do the general functions that its predecessor could do. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the issues in robotics today is that it's very challenging to build a general purpose robot. It's much easier to take a specific task that you need to have done and right. design a robot to do that. Yeah, because, I mean, we already have those. They're called yeah. Roombas. And... Roombas and, and Rovers. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's also all the robots in manufacturing, all the mm-hmm. welding robots, things like that. Uh, 1989 Pacific Northwest National Laboratory built a robot called Manny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first full-scale Android body, and it had 42 degrees of freedom, but no AI or autonomy. It was completely teleoperated. And um, I, it took me a couple of times to figure out what degrees of freedom meant. Yeah. Um, I thought it meant like the it could move its arm 42 degrees, basically. <laughs> but a, a degree of freedom is, say, like it can move its wrist. That's a degree of freedom. Right. It can turn its head right. left and right. That's a degree of freedom, right? Right. And if you look at the the human hand, the human hand has about 30 degrees of freedom, in mm-hmm. it, meaning that it, you look at the way each finger and, and your thumb can move. You look at the way you can clench a fist. You can twist your hand w- right. uh, with your wrist. Um, those are all different degrees of freedom. And uh, in fact, one of the cool things about robots is that as we get better and better at designing them, we can create robots that have far more degrees of freedom than the human body does. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I like the idea of a humanoid robot in the future that has a 360 degree motion with its wrist and then just having it change light bulbs. Because <laughs> it would just spin and not have to do the little twisty turning motion. How many robots does it take to change the light bulbs? Just, just, just the one. Yeah. Just that one. Just the one $4 billion robot. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm not saying it's an efficient system. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm an, a an supremely lazy human being with tall ceilings. Uh, in 1996, Honda introduced the P2 robot, which was a self-contained robotic humanoid. It could walk and climb stairs. Mm-hmm. The P3 followed in 1997, and in 2002, Honda introduced my good buddy, Asimo. Uh-huh. As the uh, first article I wrote for How Stuff Works was oh, How Asimo it? Works. Wow. Mm-hmm. Have you done a, um, an episode on it? I have not done a full episode on Asimo. I, I even was offered the opportunity to meet Asimo when I first wrote the article, but it would have meant having to travel to Disneyland to do it. And at the time, how stuff works was not prepared to do such a thing. Oh, back in those days, eh? I went to Disneyland by myself, uh, uh, well, with my wife, and we went and saw the Asimo production. Uh And at the end of it, I I talked to one of the Disney cast members and I said, yeah, I I wrote an article about how Asimo works for how stuff works. And she said, hang on a minute. And I got to meet Asimo. And it was a man in a suit, right? It was uh, a actually in a suit. it was actually a collection of cats that had been duct taped <laughs> right. together and then plastic. No, it was it was a, a working robot. That's pretty neat. Uh, How blown away were you? I was very much blown away. It was cool seeing it up close. I mean, it looks like a little tiny astronaut, right? Because he's got like the faceplate, especially. I love that people very... call it he. Uh, yeah. People give, and I do this all the time too with robots. I'll, I'll assign a gender, even though technically many of them are specifically genderless. Asimo uh-huh. is, is supposed to be genderless, but I often refer to Asimo as a he as well. Well, you know why? It's the shoulders, I would guess. Yeah. They go straight across and, and, and far out. That's very masculine, no matter what. Yeah. And you need that, I would guess. You need shoulders in a humanoid robot with uh, flexible arms. Well, and also, it, I'm sure every single element of Asimo is built with the balance in mind, because Asimo mm-hmm. is the first robot that can run. Yes, I've seen him run. It's, it's, it's gawky. Yeah, it kind of looks like someone who really needs to get to the bathroom. <laughs> right. As a little bit of a hoppy kind of run. Yeah. But the, the definition of run here is that there are moments where both feet are off the ground. Right. So uh, walking, you always have one foot in contact with the ground and running both feet at some point are out of contact. And that's a huge deal for robotics. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, the, you have a machine that completely separates itself from contact on the ground. It has no propulsion to keep it upright. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have like propellers or jets or anything like that. So you have to design it so it can uh, it can propel itself off the ground and then catch itself when it comes back down without mm-hmm. falling over. Mm-hmm. And that is a non-trivial challenge. No, it's an enormous challenge that roboticists have um, really kind of started to tackle lately. Um, one of the ways that they've overcome it is with rounded feet, yeah, which are very helpful in keeping balance and allowing it to run. Um, but there's drawbacks to it as well. Like the robot can't start itself. Mm-hmm. It also can't stop. So it can't stop moving. Yeah. Which is not something you want. Like there's still some challenges there ahead of the, the roboticists who are learning to teach a robot to walk. And even the ones that have taught robots to walk, um, they typically can just walk over flat surfaces with no obstacles. Right. When they encounter stairs, they're in trouble. But then you have robots that know how to go upstairs, yeah. but they can't walk on a flat surface. Mm-hmm. Eventually, all this information, all this knowledge will be brought together, and you'll have a robot that can walk no problem. Right. In fact, uh, this kind of transitions nicely into those challenges that face 
uh, designers of humanoid robots. Mm -hmm. And and locomotion is the probably one of the top ones, at least from the physical engineering side. Yeah. Uh, for example, you know, Asimo can can go up and down stairs, but that is a little deceptive because Asimo has to be programmed to go up or down the staircase and know exactly how many stairs are involved. Right. It's not so much. It's not a, a case of Asimo detecting a staircase and then uh, and then navigating through. Oh, you know, up or down it. It's the fact that all right. Now we're initiating your stair climbing program. Exactly. Remember, we practiced this. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like smoke and mirrors robotics. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Is, is the point that it's at. But that's, you know, those are the little, no, no pun intended, those are the little steps you have to take <laughs> in order to get to the destination. What do you mean, no pun intended? I don't buy that I, at all. You know, I, I started saying it without thinking about it. And then, I mean. Well, okay. You know, but then I did follow through with it. So right. I guess there was some intention there at the end. But, uh, yeah, they're also not very good at going across any kind of uh, uneven terrain, mm -hmm. right? So humanoid robots in particular find it very difficult to maintain balance over anything that's not either a flat surface or in the case of robots that can go up or down stairs mm -hmm. stairs. So if you're talking about like a, a sidewalk that is not completely even, that would be enough to give a robot trouble because it's going to try and put its foot down to where it would believe the ground to be. And if the ground's not exactly level, then that's Robot quite, fall down. Yeah, because they can't really catch their balance very well. <laughs> now, there are robots that can, but they are four-legged. Yeah, you've seen, well, that's you've an seen advantage. The, you've seen the big dog video? No, I saw the army robo mules, though. It's very similar. Yeah. Uh, big dog is essentially a robo mule type development. It is a four-legged robot that is able to maintain its balance even when pushed. And the famous video shows uh, the the robo dog, the big dog, uh, kind of jogging, and then uh, a guy just casually lifts his leg up and kicks the robo dog. Right. Like he puts essentially puts the bottom of his foot against the side of it and pushes really hard. Like cow tipping. And you see the the big dog stumble. It actually stumbles and then catches itself and then rights itself and continues on. And almost everyone has an emotional reaction to this. Like, how dare that evil man kick that poor defenseless robot? Yeah. The robot can't feel anything. Uh, but that robot is um, gasoline powered. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's one of the big disadvantages yeah, you, of keeping it inside. You Yeah, you wouldn't want to have one of these indoors. No, you don't bring your lawnmower indoors. No. And uh and the the pistons that allow it to do this are quite loud. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not not a, a subtle system at all. So a lot of work has to go into creating better systems for robots to maintain their balance in order for the locomotion problem to really be solved. And again, I mean like anybody who's seen short circuit knows that you can build a robot like Johnny Five yeah. with arms and a head and a torso and then like traction um, wheels, treads, yeah. treads. Uh, and it can go anywhere over terrain. It, it can go up steps. Probably the thing is, is again, you have to remember w when it comes to humanoid robots, you're trying to make the robot that can adapt to the human world. Right. So if you had somebody like Johnny five as your house butler or something, you, you couldn't, well, you couldn't have a, an island in your kitchen. And who doesn't love an island in their kitchen? Right, right. Since Johnny Five couldn't maneuver around it because he's too wide. Yeah, you wouldn't ha you wouldn't be able to have any any space that would be narrower than the robot's body. Exactly. Uh, and that's not what you want. Yeah. With uh, humanoid robots. It, it wouldn't work well in my house. I've got a I've got a a flat style house mm -hmm. where there's three floors. Oh, you have and, a flat style. Yeah. 
Well, it's like flat, like European flat. Uh, <laughs> not flat as in there's only one level. There are actually three of them. Four if you count the rooftop deck. So That counts. It makes it, you know, any robot that would not be able to navigate stairs easily would definitely have an issue, which is the main reason why I don't have a Roomba, because I don't want to hear the sound of a Roomba going, <laughs> falling down a right. flight of stairs. Um, but at any rate, uh, that's a great point. Moving on from locomotion, there's also dexterous manipulation. Yeah, I think we should. I think that point bears repeating. What we just talked about was locomotion. Yeah. And this is you and I, a yeah. couple of non-robot experts talking about the problem with locomotion. That's just one of myriad challenges facing humanoid robotics designers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's It's one that's easy to point to because it's something that we all, you know, end up... Uh, at least observing or participating in all the time. Yeah. And we take it for granted. Yeah. But then when you think, okay, well, how do I make a machine that does that? You start to realize, Ooh, this is, you know, even if I have a leg that has lots of different uh, degrees of freedom and points of articulation, mm -hmm. I still have to design the upper part of the robot so that it does not unbalance the lower part. And if it does unbalance, that it's able to catch itself. Uh, you know, some people just describe walking as falling and catching yourself over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Those people are nuts. Yeah. Yeah, they're not but, walking, right? No, <laughs> no. I I I describe walking as something that other people do. Uh, <laughs> I I like to keep my walking to a minimum. I thought you walked a lot. Actually, I do. Okay. I just joke about being lazy. I think moving forward, falling down and catching your balance every time—that's lurching. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a lurch. Well, as an Adams Family fan, I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, dexterous manipulation would be. The ability to pick up and manipulate objects. Yeah. Now we're really good at that. We yes. humans, you know, we can we can feel an object and decide at that point how to handle it, even if we've never encountered that kind of object before. So if I encounter something I've never seen before and I've I've ascertained that it's safe for me to touch it, uh -huh. I can touch it. I can feel it. I can get a feel for how heavy it is. I can get a feel for how delicate it might be. Yeah. And then I can adjust on the fly so that I can handle it appropriately where yeah. i'm not going to hurt myself i'm not going to hurt the object robots are not so good at that no crush kill yeah exactly even if they don't mean to right yeah if the robots if the robot's grip is too strong it can break the object if it's too weak the object slips from its grip and yeah. it falls uh and it may not be able to distinguish between different types so getting those tactile sensors where a robot can tell how tightly it's gripping something and how much pressure a particular object can take before you've reached the failure point is a big deal. Now, this is also a big deal for just making robots safe for humans to be around. It, it is a big deal. You know that the first fatality by robot occurred um, at the business end of a robotic arm in uh, Flat Rock, Michigan in 1979. A man named Robert Williams who's working on a Ford line. Yeah. Um, his robot arm was moving a little slow for his taste. In getting supplies down, so he climbed up to where the supplies were. The robot arm suddenly sped up and hit him in the head and killed him instantly. Wow! Yeah, I've um I've had a chance to see some of these industrial robots, uh, and I would say up close, but you can't because yeah. because of instances like that. Uh, industrial robots usually have lots of of safety barriers around them because it's not safe to be near those robots when they're in operation. They right. They can't react 
Exactly. So you leave it up to the humans to stay away from the robots right. because the ro- we haven't gotten to the point where the robots know to not crush you or hit you in the head. Right. Yeah. It's I, not the robots' fault. I'm looking forward to that day when they figure out not to crush me. It's, yes. It's been pretty lousy days so far. Uh, yeah. When I when I toured the Georgia Tech robotics lab, oh neat. They they talk specifically about this. This is a real challenge having robots recognize and react in a way that's going to be safe around humans. And uh, but dexterous manipulation is only that's only a part of dexterous manipulation. Obviously, the rest of it is, again, that object recognition and handling so that you're not destroying whatever it yeah. is you're trying to pick up. Yeah. Um, another big challenge in designing robots in general, uh-huh. not just humanoid robots, is just the the perception, the sensory perception of the robot. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's optical systems like actual cameras in the place of eyes mm-hmm. or infrared so that you can see even in low light situations uh radar lidar i mean there's tons of different ways of of sensing echolocation yep there's uh there's you know sensing obviously is not just sight then you have to have the sound Mm -hmm. that's a really tricky one actually because for us humans we we can kind of zero in on what's important right so if we're in if you and i were at a party which you know someone made a mistake and invited me uh you, we could have a conversation and be able to carry that conversation on even within the context of a big bustling party right because we can focus on what the other person is saying it's called a latent inhibition yeah so and when you don't have that that's schizophrenia yeah you you can't separate the the signal from the noise right. and everything either becomes noise or everything becomes signal mm-hmm. um so for a robot that might for example require uh verbal commands that's really tricky. What if you have the television on and someone's saying something on TV and uh, you are trying to get your robot to do something and it's not quite sure what to do because it's hearing these different commands and isn't sure who to obey? Yeah, you are the person pitching the bacon bowl. Right, right, exactly. Let's say that you are you know, trying to get some help in the kitchen, but uh, it just keeps hearing uh, CSI Miami and say, kill <laughs> Billy. And then next thing you know, you're like, you're just desperately trying to tell the robot please don't kill billy exactly um yeah it, it, well that's a silly example it's a real problem uh and then there's the tactile t- the responses the tactile sensors like the making sure you don't crush something uh-huh. that's delicate there, that falls into perception uh smell can also fall into perception yeah you, know, you might want to have humanoid robots that work in areas where the humanoid robot can alert humans to the presence of things that might be toxic you know, this isn't necessarily just the robot butler we're talking about. Right. This could be robots that work in areas that might uh, be dangerous for humans. And that you, would be an important element, too. Na- it's not a robot, but NASA already has a sensor that senses things like ammonia uh-huh. or smoke. It can actually sense smoke, artificially smell smoke before the fire is actually started, ignited. Interesting. Yeah, because, so you know, it's such a dangerous proposition. Right. Yes, um, clearly for for anything NASA related. Yeah. Uh, but they, it can also sense ammonia because, you know, a lot of their refrigeration systems run on ammonia and you can't have an ammonia leak on the space station. Right. Right. And uh, I mean, the same thing is true for I mean, I've heard of of uh, robots that are used in, in uh, mining operations, uh-huh. uh, which, you know, if you come upon a pocket of natural gas, that can be a real danger. Sure. That sort of stuff. Then you've got the the back end of the sensory perception. That's where you have the actual uh, in, interpretation of the data. Yeah, that's, where, a, that's a big one. That's huge. Because not only do you need to have a robot that can have that has binocular vision, so it has a depth of field. Right. 
um, it also has to know what it's doing, yeah. and what what that information means, and how to apply it to uh, adapted changes. Right, right. So, so if I were to show you, Josh, a series of pictures of various types of dogs, mm-hmm. you would very quickly pick up on the the things that mean mean dog. Like you would understand the concept of dog pretty quickly. Sure. Robots and various other computers, machines, they have a lot harder problem with this. If whatever they're looking at doesn't exactly match the parameters of the example, it's very difficult for a machine to extrapolate and say, oh, this other thing I'm looking at relates to this thing I know, even though the two examples don't aren't identical. Right. So the same thing could be true for any object. Let's let's just use a coffee mug. And let's say that you use a, a plain white coffee mug of average size as uh, the example for the robot. And then the robot encounters a larger blue coffee mug and the handle is turned the other way. Yeah. The robot might be completely befuddled by this. Yeah. So this is a real problem in artificial intelligence is object uh, identification so that a robot knows what it's looking at and also understands the context that that object fills within the environment. Right. So it's not just that, oh, that's a mug. It's, oh, that's a mug. A mug is a container. I can put things into that mug. Here are the things that can go in the mug. Here are the things that absolutely should not go in the mug, like Billy. Those are the kind of things (laughs) that... Billy. Yeah, Billy. Well, you know, we're going to need another Billy. Um, We'll make a robot, Billy. In which case, you could just turn those suckers out, right? Mass production of Billy. But yeah, artificial intelligence... An enormous problem. And that, of course, is not just with robotics. That's that's a field unto itself. And robotics is just one branch that uh, relies upon artificial intelligence. And it's from what I came across, it looked like just out of the gate. I guess it was said at university. They tried to build a robot that was just like high functioning. Yeah. And they realized, like, we have no idea what we're doing. Yeah, that that Waybot 1 was <clears throat> able to converse at uh, the level or was able to have a a a, a cognitive function uh-huh. equivalent to a one and a half year old person. Which I have to say when you're talking right out of the gate. Yeah, very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. Because we're not that much further along now. Right. But what they found from making Waybot 1 was okay, this is way more difficult than we thought. Yeah. You can't just program every kind of coffee cup in the world. Right. And even if you could, then you also have to program every kind of table and every kind of light. And we need to come at this in a different way. And so they realized, number one, humans are extraordinarily more complex than we thought before. Yes. And then number two, humans make a pretty good model for a humanoid robot in the realm of things like perception mm-hmm. and um, information systems mm-hmm. and uh, learning. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so they went to these different these different disciplines like um, neurobiology, neurology, um, psychology, and they said, what can we learn from you guys about how humans do this that we can apply to robots? And since they started taking those steps, it seems like... Uh, humanoid robotics has gotten its its footing a little more. Yeah, and we're seeing so many developments in other areas of AI that are really promising. Uh, I always bring up IBM's Watson mm-hmm. because its natural language recognition was phenomenal. The ability for it to parse uh, clues in Jeopardy and come up with the appropriate answer, knowing that Jeopardy, th- those clues are not always straightforward. Right. 
Uh, and it, again, illustrates the complexity that we humans navigate without much trouble because this is the world we've created. But then we realize, ooh, if we make a machine that's mostly, when you get down to it, based on yes or no, right. a one or a zero, true or false, and you're trying to build complex behaviors off of something that is incredibly simple when you boil it down to its basic element, that's where you're like, ooh, this is this is going to require a lot of work. I mean, IBM's Watson was an enormous machine mm-hmm. with with thousands of microprocessors just so it could be able to play Jeopardy. <laughs> right. That's a very specific function, too. We'll be right back after this next break. So creating a robot that is able to navigate and interact with a human environment and be able to interact with humans in a way that makes sense Mm -hmm. is a big challenge. Also, just the way that a a robot would socialize with humans is a huge challenge. Right. How How do you make a robot that is able to respond to commands and cues in an appropriate way? Uh, and the appropriate way is the the key there because there are humans are pretty complex and we can be very subtle in many ways. Yeah, we speak unplainly. We use yeah. sarcasm. Yep. Um, we we uh, yeah we use a lot of um, gestures. Yep. Rather than just words. Yep. There's a lot that goes into human communication that if you are a human is pretty much natural. Especially, I mean, <clears throat> if you're a human within that particular culture right. and you're familiar with that culture, because anyone who has traveled extensively knows. There are cultures where things that would be commonplace at home are very different in the place where you happen to be right then. Right. And it may be that something that is completely innocent at home is an uh, uh, you know, offensive gesture in the place where you are now. Well, imagine a robot that is not programmed to handle these kind of subtle uh, communication methods. Yeah. And he it just could, walks around giving the finger to right, everybody. Exactly. But yeah. doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. It, he doesn't know. He's just he's just doing as he was programmed. But even even beyond that, something that you brought up in our research when we were planning this was the Uncanny Valley. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. Yeah. I, I'd never read that paper before and I'm glad I did. It's really interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. So the Uncanny Valley, for those who are not familiar with the term, uh it's it describes when we start to approach artificial humans that look almost but not quite like real humans. Mm-hmm. And and by look, I don't necessarily just mean the physical appearance. I also mean their behaviors, their movements. Right. So if you are if you were to look out and see a figure that from the dis, from a distance looked like it was a human figure and you start walking towards it just thinking this is another person and then they start moving in a very herky jerky motion, mm-hmm. very mechanical mm-hmm. motion then you're likely going to have a negative emotional response. Um, often revulsion is one of the words used very Creepiness, frequently. Yeah. That's another one. I mean, I, I remember the CGI movies that would, that were almost to the point of photorealism where they look like people for the most part, but there's not, something's just not quite right with the eyes. It's their soul. They're missing yes, their soul. There's like, a, uh, Beowulf is yeah. a good example, mm-hmm. and um, Polar Express. Polar Express is the one that everyone brings up. did not do very well because of the Uncanny Valley. That's what they blame it on. Yeah, and the same thing applies to robots. So, uh, in fact, I saw a robot that was really disturbing to me. It was really, it was, it was an um, art exhibit, an installation. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a robot of Confucius in a cell filled with monkeys <laughs> And uh, the live monkeys, real monkeys, and the robot would just thrash around wildly. Weird. It was 
it was the stuff of nightmares. I've got to see that. I'll show it to you after Man, the show. a lot. Yeah. So these are all big challenges, and some of them are going to be harder for us than others. It mm. may be that the engineering challenges of locomotion are solved well before we ever get a real grip on all the artificial intelligence problems, or it could be the other way around. Uh, we, but it is multidisciplinary. It's a big, big issue. Uh, so there are some people who argue for humanoid robots. There are people who argue against humanoid robots. Where do you land? Um, I think I think research and development with humanoid robots is important because by having the goal of creating a humanoid robot you drive the research and development process. You have a specific goal in mind. Right. And in order to achieve that goal, you know what sort of problems you have to solve. And even if we never enter a future where humanoid robots are a, a, a common thing, mm -hmm. even if they are mostly used as something at, in an exhibition or uh, for PR or whatever, even if that's the only use for them, we're going to benefit from the research and development of making that possible in ways we can't anticipate. Well, yeah, and, and the more we get into humanoid robotics, the more we understand humans. Yeah. Which is pretty much the only argument I've seen that stands up in favor of doing humanoid robots. Yeah, because it's, it's expensive and it's hard. I mean, it's, it's really a difficult problem. And, it's, and, and to build a humanoid robot, something that is capable of being a general purpose robot. Right. It's, you know, it's hard to anticipate all the things you're going to need to be able to do. If you're talking general purpose and adaptable, that's really tough. I mean, we didn't even talk about the adaptability problem very much. We, we talked a little bit about a robot capable of learning from other people. Which I find fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one way, just watching humans and then mimicking humans. Mm -hmm. That's one way of robot learning. There's also... Um, uh, the the way where it's controlled through virtual reality by yep. a human, and it just kind of logs the motions the humans making it do. Like there's a NASA has a robo knot mm -hmm. that learns like that. So I think I think there's a lot of benefit to investigating artificial intelligence. Yeah, like you want your nest at home mm -hmm. to learn, so you don't have to keep adjusting the thermostat. That counts. That's yeah. a that's machine learning. Yeah. To me, the big argument against having humanoid robots and the quagmire that seems to begin is sociability. Yeah. That seems to be the whole reason anybody wants a humanoid robot. Because you can make, you know, you have a Roomba and yeah. it vacuums. You can make a driverless car. Um, as Olivia Solon wrote in Wired a couple of years back. Yeah. Um, you know, why Why do you have to make a robot butler to park the car? Just make a car that parks itself. Right. And it seems like that's where we're going right now. Yeah. Um. So when you add this extra layer of humanoid, you add all of this additional problems and troubles and redundancies. Mm -hmm. Like, like for example, if you're going to make a humanoid robot that throws a ball, this this humanoid robot to appear real needs to have a little bit of follow through. Yep. But as far as the robot, the machine is concerned, it can throw the ball and just stop yeah. right where the release is. It doesn't need to go anymore, but it's going to look weird and robotic. Yeah. If you want to get past that uncanny valley, which is another problem, um, the thing has to have follow through. That's totally unnecessary. Yeah. You can make a robot that can throw a ball, and the goal is to throw the ball. Mm -hmm. You don't have to add the follow through, but you do when you're making a sociable humanoid robot so it seems like that's the path 
that will lead everyone astray that I don't get. Yeah, I, I like the idea of designing robots for specific tasks because you can really focus on getting the task done. So there, I see this as two separate branches. Yeah. I see the branch of developing the humanoid robot as pushing forward a lot of different areas of thought that mm-hmm. could be applied in multiple disciplines so that we'll benefit from that. I see the development of robots as unitaskers as being important to actually handle the jobs that are the three D's. That's dirty, difficult, and dangerous. Yeah. All right. So those are uh, uh, the jobs that maybe they revolve a lot of repetition, which can cause injury over time, or it can lead to mistakes because you've done the same task so many times that you start to kind of zone out. Right. Robots will never zone out. Um, if it's a dirty job where it's something that's undesirable by people, robots don't care. Mm-hmm. They'll do that. Uh, or if it's dangerous, if it's bomb disposal, or if it's something like uh, the Mars Curiosity rover, these are dangerous jobs that you wouldn't necessarily want to put a human uh, into if you had the alternative. You're right. So all of these things, those that's where robots really make sense to me. Um, to to go to the places that are difficult for us to go to, maybe that's you know deep sea exploration, space exploration, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, uh, or to do jobs that might be dangerous, having a first responder robot to survey a scene to make sure that a structure is remaining uh, solid while maybe there was a fire and it has to make sure that the the it's it's not going to collapse in on on rescue right. mission, that kind of stuff. Um, but do you need those things to be? To come out and be able to tell a joke or something. No. What's the point? And most of them don't need to be any sort of humanoid form factor either, which greatly simplifies the actual development of the robot and thus cuts down on the cost. So you can can achieve the task you're trying to achieve Mm -hmm. for less money than if you were trying to build this, this general purpose machine. So then we come to this ultimate question. Why what's the purpose of humanoid robots? Well, I think the, I think the purpose is twofold. One is again, to have that specific goal in mind that allows you to define where your end point is. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that when you have that defined end goal, it makes it easier for you to build on the things you need to achieve it, as opposed to having an open goal where it's just, I want to improve AI. That's so open that it's hard to get direction from it. But right. if you think I need to have an artificial intelligence that will allow a robot to uh, here's a great example. Let's say that the challenge is to have a robot leave a room, go down a flight of stairs, mm-hmm. leave a building, get into a vehicle, drive the vehicle to a different location, get out of the vehicle, go into another building, break through a wall <laughs> and put out a fire. That's a real actual robotics challenge. That is indeed quite a challenge. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Henrik Christensen told me about this is, I mean, it really is a challenge. It's not just a real challenge. It's a real challenge. It's like a one, Google challenge? Like a DARPA challenge. Ah, I gotcha. So it's a, uh, uh, he was telling me about this and you start to think about all the things that have to fall in line for you to be able to achieve this goal. That is a valuable thing. But I think the other thing is the social aspect. I think that there are people who would benefit from a robot that is, able to give some form of social comfort, let's say for the elderly who uh, need to have some form of interaction, um, you know, that could actually be a really valuable tool. And in fact, there's a lot of work that's going into robotics to help people like the elderly who may have 
real emotional and psychological problems um, due to loneliness. Do you think that robots are the answer to that? I think that robots can help. I don't know. I, I would never go so far as to say answer. But couldn't you also make the argument that if you created robots that displaced human jobs and also simultaneously said, hey, this this uh, nursing home sector mm-hmm. is about to explode because we've got a bunch of baby boomers and we as a society have now decided that our elderly need human interaction more than we've uh, more than we've carried it out before mm-hmm. so let's create this whole other industry or let's expand this industry of elderly caretakers and fill those jobs with people who've been displaced by worker robots wouldn't well, that be better that might be uh, or you could again looking at the way a lot of roboticists frame this they say all right well it is a reality that robots are taking over actual jobs right but the hope is that it also ends up creating new jobs that are better paying jobs, less dangerous jobs, more old rep- folks friendly, more old folks friendly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like um, the idea being that that it frees up people and encourages the pursuit of jobs in engineering, uh, in computer science. Right now, we live in the real world and we understand that it's a lot more complex than telling someone who's been working on a manufacturing line, hey. I'm sorry, your job's gone because there's a robot here. But guess what? Okay. We have an opening in engineering. So if you just go and pursue a, a you know a four year degree and then some postgraduate work, you'll be right back to work. That's that's obviously not uh, something that's going to be easy, especially in the short term. Right. But the long term hope is that more and more of these jobs that are are dangerous for people or less desirable for people will be taken up by robots and then the will there will be the creation of better jobs that are higher up on the food chain. And I think that makes sense. It, to me it's just the once you enter the sociability. Yeah. And because without sociability you there's no reason to create a humanoid robot. Everything else can look like a robot. Yeah. Um so it, it's it, it's when you enter sociability that you lose me. Not only does it can it look like a robot? But we can still socialize with it, even if it doesn't sure. look like a human. Pe- yeah. the, you know, there's the story that 80% of Roomba owners name their Roomba. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you, we, we end up having these kind of emotional attachments and investments in things that don't look, not only do they not look human, they don't look like any other animal that we would interact with right. on a like owner or and pet or whatever. I mean, they, they're, they're just a robot. So... I think at the end of the day, Josh, I think we're on the same page. We think humanoid robots are an interesting idea, but not necessarily the end goal. Yeah. There's there's not a whole lot of of incentive to go after it for its own purposes. We can see the benefits of going after it in the sense of the developments that are made in that pursuit help us in other ways. And that wraps up this classic episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 